setting fire to the stoner stereotype. Sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Welcome back to Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana, The Parent's Guide to Marijuana, and over a hundred other scholarly works on the plant. I also pen the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine. Today, we'll have an animated discussion with Dr. Marcel Bon Miller on cannabis and PTSD. We'll also have a new segment of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. Dr. Bon Miller trained at the University of Vermont, earned a prestigious career development award, and has published over 100 scientific articles on drugs of abuse or aspects of psychopathology. He currently has a faculty appointment at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. Groundbreaking work on the plant. Marcel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. I wanted to cut right to the chase because a lot of Burning Issues listeners are eager to hear about cannabis and PTSD. Now, I know the diagnosis has gone through some changes lately, and I was curious, can you just sort of let us know what is a real diagnosis of PTSD? Sure. Um, a diagnosis of PTSD has changed a little bit to the new DSM-5. What we know now is that what's changed really is the expansion of the events that can qualify an individual for having post-traumatic stress. So primarily, PTSD involves intrusion symptoms, hypervigilance, avoidance and numbing, things like that. So really, you know, an individual who experiences a traumatic event and experiences a lot of hyperarousal, so kind of feeling keyed up, re-experiencing the event, and a lot of avoidance of things reminding them of the event. Okay, so it also has to be kind of a rare thing. The, the event itself can't just be any little thing. Is that a fair summary? Correct. The new criteria have expanded a little bit in terms of what qualifies. Really what we're talking about here is combat stress, sexual assault, physical abuse, natural disasters, things like that. And I know we hear about it a lot in the news, and I'm afraid that might make us overestimate how common it is. Is it a common disorder or not? In the U.S. population, it's significantly less common than among certain populations that are commonly exposed to traumatic events. So in the military, we see a lot higher rates than in civilian populations. All right. That makes perfect sense. And what's the preferred treatment for PTSD currently? Sure. So there are two kind of forms of treatment for PTSD. One is pharmacotherapy. This is, you know, prescription medication. There are two currently approved medications for PTSD. These are both um, SSRIs, so antidepressants. But the primary psychological or intervention for PTSD is prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. And can you walk us through what prolonged exposure really means? Sure. Prolonged exposure is a behavioral therapy that really involves an individual talking about the traumatic event and kind of working through it and not avoiding the details of the event by essentially approaching the traumatic event by talking about it and talking about details of the event with the idea that it's going to, they're going to habituate 
or it'll become more background noise than something that's to be avoided or, or worried about. And that does not sound like fun. Do you get a lot of dropouts? Or is it a problem? It is. While cognitive processing therapy, which kind of has the similar components of prolonged exposure, but is also focused on kind of working through cognitions, so kind of beliefs about the event, both of these are definitely not fun. I mean, it really involves talking in depth multiple times about the traumatic event in detail. And a lot of individuals don't want to do that or find that pretty aversive. And so we do see high rates of dropout for individuals trying to go through these therapies. And I want to emphasize, I don't recommend the home game here. This is not something you want to try to do on your own or to yourself. Absolutely. This is something that you do with a therapist. And even kind of advances in mobile technology and web-based technology have really kind of shied away from addressing these issues because really you want to be with a therapist in a room talking about this so that they're available and can guide you through it. Yes. And I feel like these are effective, but hardly perfect. Can you give us just sort of a feel for your impression of how the efficacy works? Yeah. I mean, again, this is really, it really comes down to how many individuals make it through. So that's more the issue than actually whether it works. For those that do make it through, it does work. Both prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy work very well. But again, the real issue that we're seeing is that a lot of people just don't either don't engage in it from the beginning or drop out of it after they've started doing it. Gotcha. And I can hardly blame them. It does sound pretty rough. What led you to think that cannabis might serve as a reasonable treatment? Well, really, it was based on observation. We found that there are lots of veterans and non-veterans that were using cannabis to help with some of their symptoms of PTSD. And so much like a lot of science, we started out with just kind of observing what was going on on the ground. And in this case, we've seen increases year over year among folks with PTSD using cannabis. And then there are a few sort of self-report things out there with larger samples do you sort of see some drawbacks with those? I mean, the fact that just a bunch of people fill out a questionnaire and say it helps, is that enough to get started? Yeah, I mean, I think it's enough to definitely start focusing on it and trying to understand it more clearly. But as you're suggesting, I think it doesn't really mean that it is a cure-all or that it does help just because an individual reports that it helps with their symptoms. We really need to examine it in more depth beyond these studies. But this, these kind of you know, pr- provide the spotlight, if you will, of what needs to be focused on in more rigorous science. I see what you mean there. So does cannabis really show some promise? Is it the cure-all we've all heard, or do we not even know? I think the jury's still out in terms of PTSD and a lot of other conditions for which states have legalized medicinal use. You know, kind of the gold standard for identifying a drug or a therapy as effective are randomized controlled trials. So really kind of rigorous scientific studies that, you know, compare it to a placebo and experimentally manipulate kind of how individuals receive it and really understand their responses in a very, as I said, rigorous fashion. And for PTSD, there are currently no randomized controlled trials of cannabis, though some of them are currently underway. We've had discussions with other investigators where we're trying to imagine, is there a credible placebo? Do you feel like some folks could come in and actually have a placebo seem that it's real? 
It's a good question. We'll see how it shakes out within this study, but definitely something, you know, because of the strong effects, particularly of THC, you know, it, it could be pretty obvious for an individual to be, you know, who realize they may easily realize that they are receiving a placebo over something that, for example, has high THC content in it. And so can you give us in broad strokes sort of what you think is a good design for this or how this is going to play out? Sure. In terms of the experimental design of the study? Absolutely. Sure. So we have two that are currently ongoing, one in the U.S. and one in Canada. They're using the exact same protocol, and we're actually hoping to add a couple more sites to this. But I'll give you the U.S. one as an example. In the U.S., we're studying 76 veterans in a multi-site trial. So there are two different sites that are involved in this, one in Arizona and one in Baltimore. And individuals come in, we're really recruiting individuals who have treatment-resistant PTSD, meaning that they've tried a lot of other therapies and they haven't really worked for them. And individuals are randomized to receive one of four types of marijuana or cannabis, high THC and low CBD, high CBD and low THC, a one-to-one of THC to CBD, and the placebo. They receive that for three weeks, and then they stop for a period of time, are re-randomized in what's called a crossover design to then receive one of three during the next phase. The placebo is dropped from the second phase. But those are kind of the four concentrations that we're looking at. And as you can tell, really, we're manipulating THC and CBD content because really that's where the science has been at this point. That's not to say that there's other cannabinoids or or terpenes or other things that are important within this context. Absolutely. I I think we got the broad strokes here. We do have to take a minute. As my cannabis radio brother, Vivian McPeak, always says, we've got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Bon Miller. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Northwest Alternative Health, Eugene's premier medical marijuana clinic, is proud to sponsor the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Are you prepared for the changes in the recreational and medical marijuana markets? The OMB presents the state's top industry experts, along with over 40 exhibitors, and features a keynote by Dr. Carl Hart. Also, tickets include a celebrity interview and private after-party with the one and only Tommy Chong. Join us Sunday, April 24th at the downtown Eugene Hilton, and be a part of Oregon's fastest-growing industry. Check out OregonMBC.com for more details. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's order. Less heat, Get ready to hear something good about cannabis. I give you Jasmine Huff. Tell us a little bit about Jasmine. Give us the good news about how you've gotten to where you are today. Like all good children, I rejected my parents' values and and ran off to become a capitalist in New York City and did a lot of work with an organization called Women 2.0. Looking at the cannabis industry, I said, you know what? Here we have a brand new industry. It's going to be a billion-dollar industry. And the rules of who leads this industry and who funds this industry haven't been written yet. Good news, only on CannabisRadio.com. 
time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, and we're back with Dr. Bon Miller talking about an amazing randomized control trial with PTSD and cannabis. Sounds like you're orthogonally manipulating CBD and THC, basically so folks get a chance at some combination of those or placebo in this first stretch of the experiment. And then there's a, a second stretch later on. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so folks receive the one of four concentrations for three weeks. They stop, and then we re-randomize them to one of three for the second part. And they again receive that for three weeks. And then we have kind of a follow-up period where individuals, we follow folks for six months after this kind of first experimental part of it, and they can receive cannabis. We kind of ask them if there's certain cannabis that they've used that they would like back to use during this last portion and we track that use as well as associated symptom change over time. And can you give us a feel for what strains you have available? Yeah, so because this is happening in the U.S. and because of current cannabis laws, we are obtaining our cannabis from the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. For our purposes, it's actually, you know, I, I know there's kind of a lot of comments lately about it. If we're just manipulating THC and CBD, it seems perfectly fine. The, the content may not be as high as cannabis obtained in dispensaries. We're letting individuals use ad hoc, meaning that they can use as much as they'd like up to a certain quantity. And so, you know, maybe it's two puffs versus one to get the same effect as cannabis that's obtained in a dispensary. But for the two variables that we're manipulating, which is THC and CBD, um, it should be sufficient for this trial. So some of the data I've published suggests that cannabis could be particularly effective for intrusions and for hyperarousal. Could you give us a feel for what intrusions really are? Sure. So intrusion symptoms really involve painful memories of the event, like thoughts, images, and different things that kind of come back to the individual that remind them of the event. Dreams and nightmares also are kind of considered intrusion symptoms. And really what we're talking about here is kind of like flash facts or just different things that make an individual feel like the event is reoccurring. I got you. It's almost like ending up back in that exact same situation. Can you give us a feel for how the funding for this evolved and what kind of horrible red tape you must have had to jump through? Sure. So it's, you know, as you're alluding to, there's very, it's difficult to find funding for trials like this. And we were lucky enough to receive funding from the state of Colorado. So the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment Really, you know, some of the innovative work that's happened in the therapeutic end of cannabis for different conditions has been funded at the state level and by private foundations. Um, So the initial kind of prototype of this was California. When they legalized cannabis, they allotted a certain amount of money to kind of better understanding science underlining the potential therapeutics. And, you know, so a lot of early research in chronic pain and cannabis came from that. And other states, most recently Pennsylvania, have followed with allotting certain amounts of money for research, which is really critical in this area because the cart is pretty far before the horse in that different from traditional pharmacology or traditional medicines, which have to go through rigorous trials before they're released to the public. Here we have a, a substance that's been released to the public prior to our understanding of what conditions it works for. And are there some concerns about side effects or bad implications for the plant? 
There are. And, you know, there's definitely some debate in terms of some of the side effects, if you will, of cannabis. There's consistent evidence that individuals who use cannabis, particularly cannabis with high amounts of THC, can experience withdrawal and addiction more broadly. So that's something definitely to track. Now, again, this is a a small population of folks that use, but definitely something to track in that, you know, heavy use, multiple daily use can result in addiction. And, you know, when individuals who are addicted try to stop, they experience withdrawal, and that may lead them to start using again. And so, you know, for those individuals who are interested in stopping use, or, you know, there's a percentage of folks that are going to have some difficulties doing so. I mean, it's funny because we've got two SSRIs, two antidepressants that have already been approved for this disorder. And I sort of hear on the street that they have their own little withdrawal symptoms as well. Is that consistent with what you've heard? Yeah. I mean, this, you know, cannabis definitely is, doesn't stand alone as the only substance with this. Um, There are lots of SSRIs as well as other medications that come with withdrawal. Benzodiazepines is a good example of this. These are medications that are used for anxiety. Um, Many people with PTSD use them, and they definitely have a pretty strong addiction potential. So cannabis is definitely not alone, and if we look at withdrawal for cannabis versus other drugs, it's probably milder on the spectrum of things. But it's definitely still worth noting and worth paying attention to because it does lead individuals who want to stop using to have difficulty doing so. I gotcha. Uh, I noticed, you know, the sample size, you can only get as many as you can afford, I guess. Uh, you think 76 enough to make an impressive argument for a larger trial or even to get some states to go ahead and include PTSD on their lists? Sure. I mean, right now, a lot of states, I think we're, we're close to half of them with medical cannabis laws have PTSD on the list, which is, so, you know, we'll see. But in terms of our trial, right. I mean, 76 people, not a huge amount, but consistent with a phase two trial, which is what this is. And even that, with our 76 folks in this multi-site trial, we're well over $2 million in terms of the cost of doing it. But, you know, to increase our understanding of this and to kind of, you know, really understand it in more depth, this is why we're doing a trial in Canada of another 40 individuals and looking for other sites as well, potentially in the Czech Republic as well as Australia, to get more and more people and to also vary the cannabis that folks are using and the method of delivery, as well as the type of trauma involved. That's super intriguing. I know a lot of your earlier work, even back in grad school, looked at other forms of anxiety. And I'm curious if you have any broad strokes about sort of the findings with cannabis and anxiety more generally. Yeah, and this has kind of informed our work with PTSD, because there has been a a bit more work on anxiety more broadly. What we found is that it really depends on the cannabinoid. There have been some great reviews in this area that have kind of shown that THC can actually exacerbate or produce anxiety, whereas CBD can actually be an anxiolytic or something that can reduce anxiety. And so there's some you know, cool studies that have come out in the past few years that have looked at CBD, for example, and social anxiety to show that individuals with social anxiety, so you know, fear about public speaking or being in social situations actually are helped by taking CBD before this kind of social stressor, if you will. That's intriguing because we don't have a real good feel for which strains are out there working and which strains aren't. Do you feel like CBD may be in some ways more promising than THC? For anxiety, I think so. I mean, again, this really depends on the on the disorder that we're looking at. For some disorders, THC has considerably more evidence. 
but you know, for a lot of conditions, not just anxiety, but inflammation and others, and epilepsy, for example, CBD seems to be definitely a promising candidate. But then again, you know, most of this research has looked at isolated cannabinoids. So they've just isolated out THC or CBD. And, you know, as Ethan Russo pointed out a few years ago in some of his work, you know, it's really important to kind of understand how these different cannabinoids interact. But it's hard because cannabis is a really complex drug versus alcohol, which is pretty straightforward. You just have varying degrees of alcohol content in different beverages. With cannabis, you have, you know, 120 different cannabinoids that vary and interact with each other, not to mention terpenes. So it's a lot more, a lot more difficult to study. And I think that's why the science has been kind of crawling along. I personally want to thank you for doing this because I can only imagine all the hubbub you must have had to hear and endure and the hoops you must have jumped through. So my hearty thanks for doing it and I appreciate you being on the show. Hearty burning issues. Thank you to Dr. Marcel Bonmiller. Thank you so much. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber Vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with our next chapter of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. I got a few emails this week about irrational beliefs, and I realized we haven't discussed them in a while. Irrational beliefs are the thoughts or assumptions that tend to make us overreact to the events in our lives. The philosopher Epictetus usually gets credit for the idea. He basically said that our thoughts alter our perceptions. The direct quote was, it's not what happens to us, but what we say to ourselves about what happens to us 
that determines how we feel. Except, of course, he said it in Greek around the turn of the first century. So bad stuff happens that can make us sad, fearful, or disappointed, and that's just the nature of the world. But when bad stuff happens and we hold irrational beliefs, instead of being sad, we get clinically depressed. Or instead of being fearful, we end up with an anxiety disorder. You get the idea. Identifying irrational beliefs won't turn sad things into happy ones. It just turns debilitating negative emotions into tolerable negative emotions. So what are these things anyway? Well, I've got a few of my favorite irrational beliefs right here. I have these maladaptive thoughts all the time, but when I call them for what they are, if I really notice what I'm doing, I usually feel a lot better. So one of my favorites is called personalization, or as I like to call it, over-personalization. That's when we think that we're the cause of some negative event, even when there's no way we possibly could have caused it. It rained in Albany the other day, and my neighbor said, of course it rained. I just washed my car. Talk about irrational. Surely he can't think that pouring a bucket of suds on his hood made lightning strike, but it's personalization. And so the next time you're blaming yourself for something bad that happened, it's worth it to ask, is this even possible? Odds are high you can chalk it up to shit happens. And if you really did do something to make something bad happen, cut yourself a little slack and just try to clean up your mess. That's really what self-compassion is all about. Another personal favorite is should statements. You know these. It's all that I should do this or it's a disaster or I should do that or I'm a bad person. And the same thing works for musts. I must do this or I must do that. Albert Ellis calls these masturbation. Now, I probably should do a little exercise every day. That'd be great. But if I don't, it doesn't mean I'm going to keel over and have a heart attack the next day. I probably shouldn't eat too many cookies, but if I have one once in a while or even an extra one once in a while, it's not going to kill me. Almost every should, must, or ought can turn into a lot of guilt or remorse. And if you catch yourself thinking these, let yourself off the hook. Even I should never think should statements can be a should statement. Hey, we all have these thoughts come up once in a while. That's life. You can always pat your mind on the head and say, there you go again. Thanks for that thought. Now let's move on to a more rational one. If you really feel you need to dispute one of these irrational beliefs, just ask yourself, is there any real evidence for this? Odds are high that there isn't. Should I really exercise every single day? Probably not. I'll need some rest days just to make sure I heal. Or it might be my preference to get into better shape, to exercise regularly, but it doesn't mean I have to, must, ought, or should exercise every day. I might be a little disappointed in myself, but I don't have to feel disarmingly guilty. Often, beneath one irrational belief, there's another one that's even sillier. The whole idea that I should work out every day rests on another irrational belief. People who work out every day are better or happier or superhuman. And in all honesty, is that true? Yeah, exercise helps your mood, but it's not the key to all of well-being. Hey, it doesn't make people who exercise every day better than me or superhuman. Can recognizing these irrational beliefs make you feel better? Hey, we've got hundreds of studies that say that it helps other people. But what about us? It's another burning issue with only one way to find out. So run a little experiment of your own and let me know how it turns out at 420research at gmail.com. That's the numbers 420research at gmail.com. 
And thanks so much for listening to Burning Issues. My continued gratitude to the Cannabis Radio Production Wizards and today's guest, Dr. Marcel Bond-Miller. Please join us again soon. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine at CanvasRadio.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.